Hey, listeners of the Bio Report. Before we get started this week, I wanted to tell you about the digital library from Deep Dive. How much time does your team spend looking for research papers? Google, PubMed, social media. There's got to be a better way. You can now search a reference database of 100 million scientific papers and read the full text of 20 million articles, annotate them, and share with colleagues. It's the smarter way to do research. Here's the best part. If you're like me and been frustrated by not being able to access articles you find because they're behind a paywall, I've got good news. With Deep Dive, you get one-stop affordable research. If you're a listener of the BioReport, you can try the enterprise version of the service for free for one month. Go to deepdive.com forward slash podcast and enter the code BIOREPORT. That's deepdive, D-E-E-P-D-Y-V-E dot com forward slash podcast. And the code is BIOREPORT, one word, all caps. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. While great strides have been made in the fight against cancer with new therapies, dose-limiting toxicities of these agents can have a big impact on the quality of life for patients and lead doctors to alter dosing at the price of optimal outcomes. Rather than treating the symptoms of the side effects of cancer drugs, Unquality Pharmaceuticals is developing a pipeline of therapies that target the biologic pathways that are at their source. It is developing targeted supportive therapies to treat such things as dermatologic conditions and diarrhea caused by cancer medicines. We spoke to Michael McCuller, CEO of Unquality, about the need his company is addressing, its pipeline, and how he expects others to think about the value of the therapies the company is developing. Michael, thanks for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me. We're going to talk about on quality, the unwanted side effects of chemotherapies and targeted cancer therapies, and on quality's efforts to address the problem through a pipeline of products to treat these side effects. We've seen many advances in cancer care. This is a, a large and growing market, but as new targeted therapies come to market, how much of a problem is the side effects they can cause? What we've seen in the market and when we talk to KOLs and other investigators, you know, oftentimes, you know, they have side effects that are involved with the skin. And in many cases, it could be quite severe and they could really some of the major reasons why we see cancer patients having a decline in quality of life is because of treatment toxicities, especially, as I said, they sometimes manifest in the skin, which can really be difficult, making it hard for patients to even walk or to use their hands. To what extent do these side effects disrupt the use of needed therapies or 
really impact quality of life for patients. If you look at some of the prescribing information for some of the agents, uh, you'll see that there are warnings and precautions for side effects of the skin. And sometimes these are managed by dose reductions or, or dose discontinuations until these toxicities reside, which we find is a problem. You know, our view and what many people will tell you is that there's a very strong correlation between positive outcomes and the ability for patients to maintain dose intensity. This is obviously not a new idea to, to treat patient side effects to allow them to continue use of a drug or minimize its negative impact, but you're taking a fundamentally different approach than what's been traditionally done. Mm-hmm. Before we get into the specific indications you're pursuing and, and your pipeline, can you explain your approach in general? The way you know I, we look at this is, you know, we, I come also from a background of drug discovery and, and cancer, and there's been, like, I think, a, kind of a, a big focus, what we used to call precision medicine or targeted therapies. And the idea has been to target these key pathways that cause cancer. So if we can target pathways in that context, there's really no reason why we can't target the source of toxicity. So we call that targeted supportive care. And the view is to really target these toxicities at their source. And if we can do that and maintain the patient's ability to stay on their anti-cancer drug, we think we have a good chance of improving the quality of life for cancer patients. Well, let's talk about your pipeline. Your lead experimental therapy is in phase two clinical studies. This is OQL011 to treat VEGFR inhibitor-induced hand-foot skin reaction. What are VEGFR inhibitors and how widely are they used today? And so VEGF inhibitors are, are in our context, there are different ways to target VEGF, of course, but VEGF is an important signaling pathway that is involved in what's called angiogenesis, an ability for new cells to develop blood vessels so that they can get blood. And when you can block those in, in cancer, you can have a very meaningful impact on patients. Um, the challenge is, you know, normal cells also use VEGF. So when you start to block this VEGF receptor in normal tissues outside the tumor, it can lead to toxicities. And, and that's really what we see in the hands and feet. Uh, they're quite widely used and standard of care in many forms of cancer. We think certainly in, in renal cancer, but also in forms of, of uh, colorectal cancer and even breast cancer. Well, what exactly is hand-foot skin reaction to these drugs, and, and how common is it among people who are treated with VEGFR inhibitors? In some cases, some of these drugs, I mean, there, I think there are probably about a dozen VEGF receptors that have been approved for use in the U.S., and sometimes they can be manifested as hand-foot skin reaction in about 60% of patients, and what you'll see um, in some of these instances that you'll see uh, cracking, bleeding, lesions, painful swelling and edema in the hands and feet that can cause patients difficulty in terms of even walking or holding things with their hands. Well, what is your experimental therapy and how does it work? The way it works is um, our experimental therapy is called OQL011. It's a topical target supportive care agent. And what it does is restores normal VEGF signaling in the hands and feet without being distributed widely so it does not interfere with the systemically delivered anti-cancer drug, which would be a VEGF inhibitor. So we give it in hands and feet, it, it actually restores normal VEGF signaling. So we see, we hope to see that we have a rapid reduction in the hand foot skin reaction in patients. And, and how is it delivered? Yeah, it's a very easy to deliver topical administration. So it, it gets actually put into an ointment or a cream and you administer it to your hands and feet two to three times a day while you're on anti-cancer therapy. 
Uh, what's known about its safety and efficacy from studies that have been done to date? Yeah, well, we, we should know more. We are going to read out the first part of our randomized phase two clinical trial here, we hope, by the end of the year, in which we're comparing OQL011 to placebo in patients who are experiencing VEGF, VEGF receptor inhibitor-associated handful skin reaction. Uh, what's the regulatory path forward? We, we hope to be able to complete our phase two, and then we will be in more negotiations with the A about what the phase three clinical trial will look like. We hope to get that launched you know, maybe in the end of next year. If all goes well, is there an anticipated date when you might be able to apply for approval? Yeah, I mean, hard to say for sure. It's hard to predict sometimes how fast enrollment would occur. You know, it's not unreasonable for us to project out to look for a submission as, as quickly as uh, 2023, 2024. You're also developing other oncodermatology mm-hmm. candidates, including one for EGFR inhibitor-induced skin rash, what are EGFR inhibitors and, and how widely are those used? Yeah, okay. so EGFR is also a targeted anti-cancer agent, uh, standard of care in many forms of cancer, including uh, lung cancer and colorectal cancer. It also targets a pathway that's oftentimes dysregulated in cancer cells. And when it's dysregulated in cancer cells, it allows them to grow <clears throat> uncontrollably sometimes or, or rapidly. So, of course, if you could block that, that should have an impact on a patient's quality of life. But also, when you start to block EGF signaling in normal tissue, you can also have very severe skin toxicity. It manifests itself usually in the torso and the face. And there are no approved agents to treat these, although sometimes investigators will use antibiotics sometimes to be able to control that. But another large medical need that we hope to be able to help patients with. And are you approaching this with a topical as well? Yeah, just in the case of you know, all of our, our oncodermatology, product, oncodermatology products are developed as topical formulations to be given to the hands and feet or the face uh, two to three times a day. You also have a, a third candidate in development for chemotherapy-induced mm-hmm. foot synd- hand-foot syndrome. Do, do these all have different mechanisms of action? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the way to think about it is they're really a bundle of products all targeting Skin toxicity is caused from different forms of anti-cancer treatment. So, you know, it's it's not uncommon. As a matter of fact, there are some nice publications and what their key messages here are from, from many dermatologists are that it, it really doesn't matter what kind of anti-cancer drug you're on. If you're getting treated for cancer, it's very, very likely you'll have some form of toxicity occurring to your skin, your nails, or your hair. Uh, skin toxicities are quite common. Unfortunately, there are no approved therapies to treat hand foot skin reaction, like I said, from VEGF receptor inhibitors, EGFR inhibitors, or from a common form of chemotherapy called capsidabine that causes also very severe hand and skin toxicities with no approved agents. And even in this case, what's usually required to manage these is, by, is through dose modifications. So another issue you're addressing is drugs that induce diarrhea. This is a, mm-hmm. a, another big problem for yeah some of these targeted therapies, how big a problem does it represent with regard to cancer therapies? If you think of chemotherapy, for example, chemotherapy, despite all the progress we've had with new agents, we call them targeted therapies or cell therapies. You know, chemotherapy will continue to be the backbone of anti-cancer treatment for probably the next decade. And you know, we've done a nice job as an industry to, to try to find ways to make chemotherapy better tolerated by controlling some of the side effects to the bone marrow. So, you know, the anemia, um, neutropenia, which is a big problem, or even emesis, but we've been able, unable to prevent diarrhea. And in many cases, the diarrhea could be quite severe and could be causing high rates of what we would consider to be grade three or grade four 
and without a way to prevent it. So we've been asking physicians in our own market research is, you know, how big a problem is it? And we were surprised to see that in many cases, oncologists are starting patients off at lower doses of chemotherapy to avoid the diarrhea because there's really no way to prevent it. So we think we have a very clever, novel way to target the key pathways that cause chemotherapy-induced diarrhea. Your lead indication in this area is EGFR inhibitor-induced diarrhea. What exactly is it targeting? Yeah, well, here's uh, I think we'll probably be farther along to target chemotherapy-induced diarrhea. Um, so we hope to be able to start a clinical trial on that that's with that program the first half of next year. And we have a very specific, clever, small molecule we, you can give, we think, once just before you take the chemotherapy. And those patents are, are being prosecuted right now, so we haven't said much about it in, in the public domain. My sense is that traditional antidiarrheals like Imodium and, and mm-hmm. other drugs are fairly ineffective at treating these types of toxicities in chemotherapeutic agents. It, it, how big a how, how well controlled are they by existing therapies? Yeah, I think that the key is from what we've seen it is in physicians really want to prevent diarrhea. It's better to prevent it than to have it occur. So in our, in the interesting thing about diarrhea is what we see in animals is typically pretty predictive of what we see in humans because the GI tract and chemotherapy functions the same way we see in animals as humans. So what we've shown, we've learned is that agents like Imodium don't really prevent diarrhea. If you have a very severe case of diarrhea, you can probably control it better with those agents, but they don't tend to be very effective at preventing it. So our view is is to develop a prophylactic treatment to give along before chemotherapy so patients won't experience diarrhea. One of the issues is that these agents generally target rapidly dividing cells, which are the ones like in the gut. Is that the problem there? That's exactly the case. You know, uh, um, yeah, we have parts of our body where the cells turn over very fast, such as the bone marrow and our skin and our GI tract, and even you know plate, the skin in our mouth, for example, turns over fast. So when you when you have systemic chemotherapy that blocks that, um, it, it can cause pretty severe toxicities. How do you see payers evaluating the value of these therapies? How do you expect them yeah. to be viewed relative to the cancer therapies that? they'll be used in conjunction with? Yeah, that's a, that is a huge question. And I think that's that's a, um, an area of supportive care where we work closely with potential payers. And I think it, it, it's all about value, you know, and I think what we've been trying to do is make sure that we can understand better how to show how viable these, these are. For example, you know, finding ways to reduce dose reductions is important. You know, I think payers appreciate the fact that we want to be able to have patients on their cancer treatments for at the right dose. So that's important, right? And I think um, that's part of it. And we're doing quite a bit of work now to better understand how do we need to, to create a value proposition that makes sense for everybody. My, my guess is that some drug developers might be quicker to recognize the value of these therapies than, than payers would, particularly in the case of drugs that have very promising anti-cancer properties, but may be too toxic by themselves to use. How much of a strategy do you have going forward in, in partnering with drug developers? Yeah, we, we, that's a, something we talked about a lot and, you know, trying to figure out the easiest way to do it. I think one way, you know, certainly it's easier to do that once we have an approved drug. So, you know, finding ways to get our drugs approved and getting patients access as quickly as possible this is the number one priority. It really be, becomes quite complicated when we start to think about combining two experimental drugs. 
you know, so I think what would typically probably happen was, you know, once we get our drug approved, it becomes, we hope, we think commonly used and maybe even a standard of care so that it's easier in terms of protocol development to just add our drug than it is to try to form a complex collaboration. In March, you announced a $35 million venture round. How far do you expect that to take you? Mm, that's a good question, but it's certainly through the first readout of, of clinical data for 011 and maybe even two other drugs. So it's interesting, um, you know, these, I come from an oncology background and clinical trials are important, but they're very complicated, right? And they sometimes take long. It's interesting that the supportive care studies tend to be quicker and generally less expensive. So our, our expectation is that our, our runway goes quite a bit farther than it would be if we were just developing a cancer drug. And in terms of the finance strategy going forward, do you expect to use traditional venture financing or are you looking for partnering as a potential way to extend your runway? That's uh, Well, the partnering is certainly non dilutive cash, and that's part of our business model. But it's not just the cash that partnerships bring to us. You're still a small company emerging. We've only been around for, for three years. So we love to think about finding ways to access capabilities through partnerships, and we've been starting that process uh, just recently. And, and we think that there's probably something that we could do to help us. And I, I want to make sure people think about partnering is not just cash, but access to research capabilities, access to, to high quality manufacturing, access to KOLs and, and dermatologists, oncologists, gastroenterologists in Europe and in Japan. You know, I think this becomes a more of a global strategy than it's just a, a U.S. strategy. And in terms of commercializing these therapies, is the expectation you would build your own commercial organization? Yeah, I think I think first things first. And, and certainly, you know, for us, what we can focus on, you know, we want to be in the U.S., right? I, I think it's reasonable for us to have a vision expectation to be able to at least co-develop and co-commercialize a drug in the U.S. It'd be hard for us in the short run to, to develop a commercial infrastructure for the EU. So certainly finding a partner in Europe would make a lot of sense. Same as for Japan, that tends to be specialty regional player. So ultimately, you know, this, what we find is important and want to make sure people appreciate is that there's a lot of commercial synergy when we start to think about pushing our three Oncoderm products to the same franchise or same infrastructure, right? Because we're talking about three separate drugs. They're all addressing the same types of toxicity, but caused by different anti-cancer agents. So, you know, we can see a lot of synergy already in terms of how we interface with KOLs. You know, starting one study, then a second one is a lot easier. They all understand more about this oncoderm space, which is becoming quite important, I think, much better recognized. So that makes a lot of sense. There's a lot of leadership or what we call category leadership benefits to that. But that also translates into the commercial side as well. Michael McCuller, CEO of OnQuality Pharmaceutical. Michael, thanks so much for your time today. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.